I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Andrew Norton, Professor in the Practice of Higher Education Policy at the Australian National University. I'll be talking to Andrew about the government's proposed university fee reforms and what they mean for the future of Australian higher education. Andrew Norton, how are you? Well, despite my ANU affiliation, I actually live in Melbourne, so I am <laughs> locked down, you know, able to do this interview because I can't go anywhere else under the current uh, state of Victoria rules, but at least I have plenty of time to work. We're thrilled to have your time. <laughs> we wonder we wonder how the show is going to continue once everybody can get out and about again. Uh, hopefully people will spare us an, uh, an hour once in a while. Look, they spend their on liberty watching this. That's <laughs> <laughs> you. Uh, you maintain a very influential education or Australian education certainly website at andrewnorton.net.au, and on your site you wrote uh, recently, "quote Although I don't support the Tehan plan to steer student demand to national priority fields, from day one I have supported increasing the number of student places." Can you tell us a bit about the THAN reforms and what you think of them? Well, to go back a step as to why I actually support more student places, because this is actually a bit of a controversial point in itself, that some people think too many people go to university. But uh, the principal reason that I was so interested in the number of places was that uh, we have a baby boom cohort, often called the Costello baby boom, because it was possibly a part reaction to the baby bonus that he introduced who will start arriving at university age in the mid-2020s. Mm. And so the birth cohort jumps by about 50,000 uh, people in a very short period of time. And so on recent history of about 40% participation, looking at about 20,000 extra school leavers looking for a university place, in a system at the moment that's likely to see the total number of student places go down rather than up. And so my view is that, you know, we have significant generational problems here where just by mistiming of birth, a lot of young people could miss out an opportunity to go to higher education. Until then, we're in a demographic dip, and that is a relatively small birth cohort. And so I thought until the mid-2020s, we were probably going to have probably slightly too many university places in the system. But history says and recent evidence supports that in recessions, demand for higher ed goes up. And when you can't get a job, you know, studying is probably a reasonably constructive way of filling in your time and maybe improving your future prospects. Actually, let's get into the TN reforms in a minute, because that's really interesting. I mean, we all know that there's been this massive exodus of international students and Australia has all these empty seats in its classrooms. Why not just fill them with domestic students? Well, that will happen to an extent, but the funding system for undergraduates doesn't really support that. So universities have a fixed maximum amount of Commonwealth funding they can get at the moment. Uh, they can enrol students on a student contribution base only, but in many fields, that's sort of 30, 40% of their total funding range. Right. So they could afford to do that for you know a few percent extra uh, on total enrolments, but not for a massive expansion, which is kind of what we need in a, in a few years' time. And so that's why I think we need some more, more fundamental changes to break those blockages in the number of student places. 
Well, we will get to that student contribution issue later in the interview. Let me just ask you now, can you, I mean, you can probably summarize for people better than I can the THAN's proposed uh, fee reform, fee structure reform. Can you give our listeners some idea of what's going on? Well, it's really got two, two main objectives. So let's start with the number of student places. So there's really, I think, two main ways that it proposes to increase the number of places. One is it's going to reduce the average subsidy they pay per student. And so basically what that means is that universities will have to enrol a larger number of students to get the same amount of money as before. So basically an efficiency-driven way of increasing the number of student places. Okay. The other thing, this is where the student contributions come in, is that they've got some very radical student contributions uh, with some disciplines actually getting a substantial reduction in student contributions, such as nursing or teaching, but others such as business courses, law courses, most humanities courses, most social science courses, uh, they will go up from rates between seven and $11,000 to $14,500 per year. Right. And the reason I say that may increase places is for a university, they can probably deliver the place on the $14,500 alone, even though there is a $1,100 subsidy attached to those places if they're within their total block of money. They might just decide, well, we'd rather have the 1100 but we can deliver on the 14500 And so in those fields, you know, law, humanities, business, we'll basically operate what we call a demand-driven system. That is, we will enrol unlimited numbers of students or limited only by our capacity to take them. Right. Okay, so I'll ask uh, our producer, Emily, to queue up the, our table, or your table, I should say, on the mixed signals that the federal government is giving to students and universities. But just to provide some context, the, the, the education fee reform package is, as I understand it right now, is it in the Senate or is it no, still waiting? It hasn't actually been introduced into Parliament because due to COVID, okay. Parliament hasn't been sitting, but the government did this week release a draft of the legislation. So it's obviously getting very, very close to introduction right. probably at the end of the month. Right. And the headlines have been that it will raise fees for the humanities and social sciences and drop the fees for the sciences. Is that broadly where we stand? A little for the science. So the big cuts are really feels like teaching and nursing, where they only pay $3,700 a year compared to nearly 7000 now. Right. So for some disciplines, and there are some idiosyncratic humanities like English and English Lit, which will be $3,700 as opposed to $14,500. Right. Uh, so for some students, it's basically going to be uh, very positive. That is that they'll get right. the same course they were already planning to do, uh, but uh, you know, around half the previous cost. That's good for them, but their fellow students and other courses are effectively paying for it. Right. Now, you're much more plugged in than I am. So let me just run a hypothesis by you. Is it the case that English got a low fee in the reform package because they wanted to reduce fees for the study of languages? And someone said, it'll look really bad politically if we subsidize every language except English. <laughs> so we better put English in there, too. I I have not heard a good explanation of why English is in there. My first thought was that this was, say, so a lot of the, the package is about 
trying to make graduates more employable. And I thought maybe this is about you know, encouraging the new subjects to improve their English. So, you know, employers, you know, occasionally complain that the, the written communication skills of graduates aren't what they should be, for example. But if you look carefully at the underlying classifications of subjects, the, the subjects that would teach you, say, clear business communication are actually in the communications field rather than the English field. And they're in the 14,500 category, not the 3,700. Right. But, you know, if you want to study the English of Chaucer or Shakespeare, which will probably won't help you in the average office, uh, there's a bargain waiting for you. <laughs> so let's talk about that, that incentive alignment, because there are certain fields that, you know, Dan Tehan, the education minister, wants to steer us away from, like <clears throat> sociology. Uh, and there are other fields that, that he wants to steer us towards, like nursing. But that doesn't mean that students and universities face the same incentives to do so. I mean, how are the how are the incentives structured for students and universities, either to offer places or to take those places? So this is where I think the package has some anomalies and contradictions. So it wants to steer enrollments towards fields that they think are either good for employment prospects or some other kind of national priority. And they're very focused on the idea that fiddling with the student contributions will encourage people to apply for those courses and those applications will drive the university to supply more places in those courses. But my view is that uh, students are largely driven by things other than the cost of the student contribution, so that won't have a major effect. But universities themselves, who are, uh, as we know, facing a financial crisis, will be very open to financial incentives to provide one thing over the other. But the government has completely uh, ignored that side of the supply and demand equation. So instead of providing extra total funding, for the disciplines that they think students should do, they've actually done something totally different, which is they've taken a study of university teaching and scholarship costs, which was done by Deloitte Access Economics, and said, well, everyone's going to have these average rates. And so some of the fields that they actually think should be encouraged, such as science and engineering, end up with a lower total funding rate from the university's point of view than under the current system. Okay. And so that's why I argue there's a contradiction that there is an incentive for the student to take some of these courses because they're a little bit cheaper, but there's a disincentive for the university to take the additional students because their funding rate is lower than what it is right. now. Right. Uh, oh, go on. Go on. Sorry. I guess this is, this is why people keep asking me for predictions about how this will turn out, but because the incentives are pointing in opposite directions, it's very hard to say what calculation universities will make. Right. Let me just take a moment to say a quick hello to our uh, viewers, uh, Bradley, Anthony, Peter, Mike, uh, Harmony. Thanks, everyone, for being out there listening today. We're going to go to viewer questions in just about uh, four minutes, five minutes, so please do start feeding your questions in. We'll take note of them and we will uh, get to them as soon as we move over to viewer questions. In the meantime, Andrew, I have uh, one more question for you, and it's something I haven't seen anyone discussing in this space. That is, will, will these incentives and these fee changes affect how many places are offered and taken, or will they instead simply affect the quality of students? That is, 
you know, will the university take the same number of, uh, you know, engineering students, but if more students apply to engineering, they can just raise the ATAR for that course. Yeah. A little bit hard to know how this affects demand, but we've got an interesting case study where really the only case study where we can suggest that a change to student contributions did affect demand, which was basically halving the science student contribution about 10 years ago. Right. And the interesting thing was that the sort of the median ATAR of science applicants didn't go down. That you'd think that all other things being equal, more applicants means uh, lower ATAR applicants as you dig deeper into the pool of potential students. But science wasn't just popular overall, it was increasing its popularity amongst the most able students. And so that was quite an interesting outcome. But in other fields, you could imagine that if you're talking about people who are humming and harring about whether to go to university at all, and then suddenly realise, well, nursing's only going to cost me 3700 a year even if I drop out after year one. You can imagine that type of student brought in by the low price would sort of lower the average uh, ATAR of the students who are beginning the course. Right. Now, let me just uh, warn Emily uh, to queue up table two on university places. And this time, I promise I'm monitoring Emily. So thanks, everyone, for your patience as we try to work the technology. Uh, I'm going to ask you about, uh, Andrew, about what this might mean for universities offering places based on the student contribution only. And that's our table two. And again, this is from your own website at andrewnorton.net.au. Your data, your table. Could you run us through this idea that universities might actually say, hey, you know, the government is paying 92.9% or, or I'm sorry, the, the, the student is paying 92.9% of the cost of a humanities degree. Why not just forego the government contribution and pack them in? So I think that is quite plausible, for example, in humanities, because that 14,500 is actually more than they get in total now. And so if the university has found a way to deliver on less than 14,500, that's actually quite feasible for them to keep expanding on that basis alone. If you look at some of the other fields that uh, have, had, have new prices, nursing's perhaps a, a classic one, it's a very popular field. Now, the currently nursing student contributions, just over 30%. Uh, of the total funding rate the university receives. So already a modest incentive to supply additional places for the universities. And then it would drop to 18% with that new $3,700. So what that really suggests to me is that universities will be very careful about taking additional nursing students that they weren't going to be fully funded for. And so even though nursing is a field that's grown a lot and given the ageing of the population will probably need to keep growing, I'm not convinced the universities have much of an incentive to over-enrol in that field, right. over-enrolling more than their funded amount. And therefore, this is one of the reasons why I think the package is not going to have its desired effects because it's not removing uh, the key blockages to increase supply in, in important fields. Right, right. Now, we're going to go to viewer questions in just a moment. So people, please do get your questions in. I'd like to say a quick hello to Elizabeth, Mr. E, Peter for joining us and for asking your questions. I do have them on the queue and we'll get to that in just a second. In the meantime, I would like to ask for your support. 
support. So On Liberty, of course, is a program of the Center for Independent Studies, which is entirely a membership-supported uh, organization. It receives no government funding whatsoever. In order to keep going, we need contributions. So please do consider joining CIS at a $40 level is the introductory membership level if you're not already a member. Uh, to do that, just click the support link. Uh, producers are going to put a support link up in the chat box in a minute, or it's pretty easy to find on the CIS website at cis.org.au. Of course, if you join at the $250 membership level, the free gift. <laughs> I will make sure you get one of these books personally signed by me. Liberty and Liberalism, the first book on class work of classical liberalism published in Australia, republished by the Center for Independent Studies a few years ago under the leadership of Greg Lindsay. And I will get you a copy if you join or if you upgrade to the $250 level specifically in response to this call. Of course, please subscribe to the YouTube channel like the video, uh, not just because you like the video, because more people like the video, the more people will see the video, YouTube will feed it to them. Uh, Andrew, thanks for sitting through my uh, shill for money. <laughs> Let me go to questions. Uh, we do have a question from uh, Elizabeth, and I'd like to start with that. She says the plethora and diversity of what appear to be utterly worthless courses, her judgment, not mine, at universities must be addressed. Unless it's STEM, should these courses be university degrees at all? Mm. So obviously higher education has expanded over the decades and now teachers feels that either didn't exist and probably one of the ones that Elizabeth is talking about or used to be in the vocational or on-the-job training space. I guess we all have views about some courses being questionable, but my view is that it's generally better to let the universities and the market decide on these things that I think governments, and I think this TN package is sort of an example of it, that governments can often end up with rather quirky ideas uh, of what is actually going to be needed. They can miss important changes. And then you know, the price of all kind of market type systems is that a lot of bad ideas are actually tried out. Um, right. It's sort of part of the process of experimenting to see what works. But that's the price you pay for a system that's flexible enough to allow the good new ideas to get started and also find ways. Like there's, there's a whole lot of scientific and technological fields in universities that simply didn't exist 30 years ago. And the very flexible nature of the higher ed system meant that universities as self-accrediting institutions were able simply to create those courses and market those courses without any long political or bureaucratic campaign in right. the government to actually let them start. So it's the price. The price of the good stuff is that some of these things are a little bit questionable. <laughs> now, Anthony actually wants to go the other direction. He's asking, should we not convert some universities to polytechnics? And I might say back into polytechnics uh, who teach technical subjects relevant to employment and return universities to a more traditional role. Look. If we could go back in time 30 or 40 years, I'd say probably yes to that. But I think the political realities of trying to turn institutions that have now been universities for 30 years into something else would be hugely politically traumatic and therefore not really worth the effort that they can do these other things. And we can modernise the vocational system in ways that achieve similar goals that a lot of the tapes are already in this situation where 
the courses they traditionally teach are sort of trade type skills, often involve higher level technology and organizational skills than might have been needed in the past. And so they are evolving to teach more things that look a little bit like higher education. And so we probably should approach it from the bottom up there rather than fighting 20 or 30 universities about whether they call themselves a university or not. <laughs> Peter, there's a kind of a follow up on this. He suggests that too many uh, local students are what you might call low capability, uh, have driven a decrease in standards, might be better off in a TAFE setting. I, I mean, even the University of Sydney, which is supposedly, you know, Australia's oldest, uh, you know, in some ways, one of its most elite universities. I know at University of Sydney, we accept students with ATARs down in the mid 70s. Uh, of course, at other universities that can go down into the 60s and 50s. Should these students really be in universities at all? So the way I've approached this in the past is looking at what are the realistic alternatives a lot of these students have. I actually did a report at the Grattan Institute when I was there a couple of years ago uh, on this. And we actually found that, for example, a lot of the lower ATAR female students do nursing. And we analyzed their outcomes across the ATAR range. Very little difference in their long-term outcomes based on, on ATAR. And if you think about the alternatives they had, often sort of uh, vocational aged care or childcare, nursing was definitely a better option right. for them. Well, when you do say long-term outcomes, do you mean life career outcomes or do you uh, mean just so how we, well they did in school? No, we had them up to their mid-20s, so into oh, the start okay. of their careers. But we know that in nursing, there's very high retention in the nursing profession, for example. So we're reasonably confident that most of them will have a long-term uh, long work in nursing. For young men, for example, though, there was a different story that, you know, the lower ATAR young men in particular are more likely not to complete than their female contemporaries with similar ATAR scores. Uh, and they have, compared to women, relatively well-paid vocational alternatives. If they're prepared to do you know, engineering, construction kind of work, uh, that pays a lot more than what they're likely to get with a, a bachelor degree. And they can get to the job much more quickly because the courses are, are shorter. So it's a very nuanced, I think, situation where we should really look at you know what are the realistic alternatives of each individual rather than generalizations about high or low ATAR. Now Anthony wants to know if nursing should be a university course at all and, and I might add to that that I've had colleagues in medical schools uh, suggest that they're you know upset that a dean of medicine might in fact be a nursing professor uh, because you know medicine dentistry nursing all being combined in single schools of, of health sciences. What are your own thoughts about the role of nursing in, in university education? Look, I think nursing practice is as sophisticated as many of the other occupations for which higher education uh, prepares people. Like there is still a vocational uh, enrolled nurse category. The registered nurses have degrees. And so I think it's, re and it's they've been in the higher ed system now since the 1990s. And I think that's probably working reasonably well. But nursing is not just, you know, changing sheets and feeding the patients. Often it's making complex judgments about medication and when to call the doctor and all these other things. And so I actually think it's equivalent to many other fields in, in higher education. Uh -huh. And we uh, also had a question from uh, Mike about the use of English that you, know, you can only communicate in business if you can use English effectively. You mentioned communications earlier. How important should 
communications be? Should it be more embedded into other university degrees? My view is yes. And this is one of the interesting aspects of the way we run higher education in Australia, that we tend to acquire the skill sort of by osmosis as part of subjects that are really based around disciplines rather than skills. Whereas I think there's probably a case for you know, more comprehensive sort of writing and composition courses, such as exists in some American universities, where you're really just focused on the writing skills. You would read many more student essays than I ever have to do, but certainly <laughs> my, my observation of the ones I do get to see uh, is that often they're making errors which are fairly easily fixable. <laughs> Uh, if they can just follow certain learnable rules. They'll never be great literary writers, but they can learn to write clearly and concisely. And I think there'd be huge value in not necessarily very long, but shortish courses which actually focus on doing that. And there would be skills that would help them through not just their university three or four years, but through their entire careers and be able to, to write clear and concise English. Right. Now, I'm sorry to be rapid firing so many questions at you, but the fact is we just have so many questions coming in on this show. And I will remind people watching on Facebook, you can ask questions on Facebook as well. And those will be fed through uh, to me via a messenger window. But maybe I shouldn't say that because I have a lot of questions to get through. Uh, we have one particularly broad question from Mike. Mike wants to know, what qualifications should a university undergraduate have? I mean, is a purely demand-driven allocation of places realistic, or should we be raising standards? Uh, similar kind of point we just discussed in some ways that uh, I think actually there are courses that can deal with a range of abilities, and the system reflects that. And the courses that do require, you know, relatively high academic ability do have higher selection criteria. There is obviously some point where you know, university is not the right place for someone, but my view has always been it's actually quite hard to tell uh, in advance of admission who is going to be successful and who is going to be unsuccessful. That you know, if you look, say, at a, a scatter plot of ATAR and average marks, there are there are some people got you know ninety five ATARs who are bombing out, and you've got some people with ATARs of sixty who are actually doing quite well. And there are all sorts of reasons why that might be true. But to me, this is kind of, again, it's kind of a more market-based approach that, sure, the ATAR has plenty of indicative information in it, but the real right. test is how do you go once you're enrolled? And that is much more reliable information than the, the ATAR proxy. Mm. Now, Peter is raising questions about the ATAR, and this is something I'm especially interested in because he's saying that ATARs are misleading because many students enter through back doors with lower ATARs due to uh, you know, bonuses, ATAR bonuses for you know, where they live, that sort of thing, uh, resulting potentially in many students being at universities who simply aren't prepared to, do, to be there. Now, I've had this debate on our own academic board at the University of Sydney saying that it's not a favor to let students in who are poorly prepared. Uh, you know, you're actually hurting them by giving them an ATAR bonus. Uh, what are your own views on this? Look, it depends how big the ATAR bonus is. Like say the normal ATAR is 80 and the let in say equity or other cases on 75. The differences between the average performance in a 75 and 80 ATAR are fairly small. Uh, 
And particularly the research shows that for people who've been to government schools or have disadvantaged backgrounds, they actually tend to slightly outperform people yeah. who've been to private schools with the same ATAR. I think the reality is that uh, at the government schools, you don't get the same level of support and therefore their ATAR is a little bit diminished by that. But once they're at university, uh, their underlying ability and their self-organisation means they slightly outperform their, their peers. On the other hand, if you're in a class where the median ATAR is, you know, 85 and you come in on 65, the reality is the whole class will be pitched at the more typical student and you will probably struggle. So the university has to be quite careful about the range of abilities in the classroom. Right. Uh, Mike, by the way, is saying that he is already a member of CIS, a proud member. It is well worth it. So I suggest everyone take his advice, become a member. In fact, one thing that keeps us on air here at On Liberty is the fact that we're able to attract new members, which uh, convinces CIS that the program should be, that resources should be put into keeping us, uh, keeping us going week after week. We do have a very sophisticated question from Mary, and this is the question about equity risk if student contributions are changed so if for example you know the arts and humanities have a very high student contribution level will we find that only students from elite backgrounds get to have a humanities degree generally the research has shown that price sensitivity doesn't differ a lot between uh, equity levels between socioeconomic levels that people make fairly similar calculations about the future costs and benefits involved in taking a course. But I think there's a slightly different aspect to the humanities, which is compared to some of the other fields, uh, more people nominate pure interest as their reason for doing humanities. That is, they're not necessarily expecting a financial return from their course. And so if it is just for interest and personal development, you could imagine that people will be more sensitive to price. This is one area where I think there will be added price sensitivity due to these reforms. And you might expect that you know, basically 43,500 by the time you finish your degree, that is probably a much larger share of a low SES person's lifetime income than a high SES person's. So I, there could be some marginal effects. On the other hand, in you're planning to be a lawyer, probably the 14,500 compared to 11,300 now, uh, you'd rather not pay, but it's not changing the fundamental economics of a legal career. And right. therefore, I wouldn't expect much difference by social background. Well, then that really does raise a question that <laughs> luckily Bradley has already asked us, uh, which is, should taxpayers be subsidizing university education at all? This is something where my view has changed uh, over the years. So my view was in the past that we should you know, remove most or all of the subsidies and let universities charge whatever they want. Now I'm more cautious about that point of view. Uh, mate, this is partly because I did a lot of work on the student loan scheme help and realised that if you deregulated fees, a lot of it would never be repaid, uh, which is a big cost to taxpayers. The other reason is that I think what the overall funding system is mostly doing is sort of helping move a, a large expense for something best done in early adulthood, higher education, uh, 
and helping spread it over the life cycle, partly through taxes, partly through the help loan scheme. And I think probably that is still a relatively good way sociologically of running this, that it, it moves some of those costs to a period in people's lives where they can afford to pay them. Right. Now, our own uh, Glenn Fay uh, has pushed a question on me, <laughs> so I will push it back out to you. I think you probably know Glenn Fay. Uh, should the government drop funding support for students who fail courses? And he's pointing us towards an overnight announcement from the education minister. I'm unaware of that announcement. Maybe you can cue us in. Yes. So what the government has announced is that Effectively, students who fail more than half their subjects in a bachelor degree after having taken eight uh, will no longer be eligible for Commonwealth support. That is, they won't get a help loan and the university won't get a, a subsidy for them. Now, what they're proposing in its detail is, is I think, flawed, but the broad concept is right because the research that I did with colleagues at the Grattan Institute showed that about 6% of first year students fail every subject they take. And we believe the reason for that is that many of them aren't even there, that, that they've actually disengaged, but they haven't gone through with the paperwork and formally withdrawn from their studies. And so they're needlessly incurring health debt and they're needlessly getting fails on their academic record. And if what this does is mainly prompt universities to manage student performance more effectively, that's in everyone's best interests. Where I think it's uh, problematic is that there needs to be more nuance about the final decision. So there are in the legislation exceptions, say you've been sick and there are other circumstances outside your control. But I think the university say, well, this person has failed because you know they weren't adjusting to university life immediately after school, uh, but we still believe they've got real potential and should start again. Let them make that judgment. They should continue while those who are clearly failing or not working can be you know, safely excluded as they should be. Right. Now, Peter says that university growth has been largely driven by the Bradley reforms and neglect of the TAFE vet system that's resulted in young people, regardless of their capability, thinking that universities are the only post-secondary options for them. I mean, what's your own advice to students about universities versus you know, TAFE and vocational courses? Look, again, it very much depends on the individual. I'd say if you've got an ATAR in the top 25%, uh, university is almost certainly the best option for you. If you've got an ATAR sort of below 50 or 40, TAFE is almost certainly the best option. But we do have the people in those middle ATARs where history shows that they go to both sectors. And I think they have more complex judgments to make. I gave the example of nursing before, where for women, I think that actually is better than TAFE on average for them. Uh, but for men, often the TAFE options will be better, shorter courses, cheaper courses, and more likely to get jobs that pay at or above the average wage. I think there's an issue with TAFE prestige, which I think you know the Prime Minister and others are, are trying to correct. And we shouldn't let people believe that university is the only or best option, uh, but it does need to be an individual decision rather than a generalization about what people should do. I mean, is there anything wrong with university graduates going on to TAFE degrees? Well, quite a few of them do in fact get a TAFE qualification. It's a bit of an under-researched field, but 
many of it will be you know improving on some particular skills for example a lot of engineers do vocational diplomas that you know, enhance their skills in particular aspects of their job so we actually see that on an annual basis there are actually fairly similar numbers of students moving between the sectors that roughly similar numbers of people with a vocational background go to higher ed and in the other direction all right um harmony would like to ask your views <laughs> i'll put this broadly on the whole chinese students issue her own suggestion is that australia shouldn't be taking chinese students at all in light of the uh, Uyghur and Tibetan genocides going on in China, the repression of freedom of religion in China, the Falun Gong issues in China. Uh, what's your own view on the, let's say, the morality as opposed to the financial aspects of Australia's engagement with China? Look, I, I don't particularly want to penalise Chinese citizens for the actions of their government. Like, uh, living in China is a fairly big penalty to start with because it is an oppressive uh, regime. On the other hand, I like you, I am concerned about some of the issues that have been raised by over-reliance on Chinese students that, you know, how several of our leading universities have got themselves into controversies about excessive influence of the Chinese Communist Party, that's not a good situation to be in. Uh, a lot of the problems around English language and cheating are actually heavily driven by the Chinese student population. And so, even though I would never have wanted the number of Chinese students to drop the way for the reason they have, which is this uh, pandemic, I think some moderation in their numbers is really in everyone's long-term best interests, even though for some universities that does mean their research output will have to decline on its recent peaks. Right. Now, Peter has a, a, a comment that I'm going to turn into a question, which is that Australia is greatly oversupplied with law graduates. Most will not end up in law jobs anyway. They won't be practicing lawyers. My own suspicion is that a law degree simply acts as a signifier that a student had once had a high ATAR, but maybe I'm just thinking in American terms where that's what a Ivy League degree means in the US. What? Why do we have so many law students? And is it a bad it's, thing? Look, it's, it's not as out of control as people believe, but... Again, I go back to this question of given you are probably a humanities-oriented, writing-orientated person thinking about what to do after school, what are your realistic alternatives? And if you've got a humanities kind of bent, maybe journalism, maybe a straight arts degree, so if you look at the alternatives and look at the outcomes, law is still by far the safest degree to do. And having gotten unused law degree myself, or at least never been a lawyer, I actually think it does teach skills that maybe other humanities courses don't. For example, uh, law is not necessarily more conceptually difficult than humanities courses, but the volume you have to learn is much greater, and therefore there are all sorts of skills around organising your knowledge and different ways of, you know, interpreting information that, you know, you've got to apply it to the, the legal principles. Plus, just the practical of, you know, in, in the jobs I've done, often I've needed that confidence to read a statute or read a judgment. And so I actually think it has been useful, even though I've never been a lawyer. Mm. Now, Mary wants to know, we're going to be wrapping up soon, by the way, so just a couple more questions. Mary wants to know, do you think the government has employed an appropriate methodology in assessing public benefits of degrees? Uh, 
No. <laughs> <laughs> Should we leave it there, or do you want to elaborate? <laughs> uh, it's partly based on employment outcomes, but my argument here is that if the employment outcomes are genuinely good, you don't need a subsidy to encourage a student to do that, i.e. there's already a substantial reward, that is you'll get a job and a well-paid job at that. Then you might say, well, what about the fields where the returns aren't good, such as, you know, English literature? They would say, well, you know, it's quite an eccentric judgment on the part of the government to say that English literature is valuable, but English history is not. And so the government gets down, bogged down in these very contentious arguments that really are best avoided. You know, let the students and the university decide uh, what they want to teach and what they want to learn. All right. Well, we have two final questions, that, and we're going to have to cut it short there. We actually have more questions still coming in. But uh, I'm going to ask you a question for Mike and then a final question for myself. Mike's question is a really broad one. How much influence do business and economic developments, and I, I think we might throw in here technological developments, he specifically mentions blockchain, uh, have on university thinking regarding courses and student intake? Uh, you know, Should universities, I, I guess I might rephrase it, is should universities be thinking more about the technological cutting edge? I think they are thinking about the technological cutting edge that, you know, that's often the academics are very much wired into that and uh, academics like to teach their research interests. So there are plenty of incentives in there. And UTS in Sydney is an example of, you know, where they've moved into trying to these new fields. Uh, we've got our friends at RMIT University have set up a whole centre around blockchain. And so universities do see these opportunities. And in my view, one of the benefits of our relatively decentralised government not having so much control, as I before, is that universities can spot these trends uh, and try and tap into them immediately without any bureaucratic process of deciding what to do. Right. And then finally, the, the big question for me that's, that's dear to my own heart, what do these THAN reforms mean for jobs, specifically my own? <laughs> or my own for that example. <laughs> uh, so it, look, the big threat to jobs in the higher edge sector is from the decline in international students. And if either of us end up unemployed in the next 12 months, it's going to be due to our, our institution's reliance on, on international students. But the TN reforms do actually reduce the amount of funding universities get per student in most cases. And how universities respond to that will be very interesting. I would suggest if your job is primarily teaching, uh, that's probably going to be teaching domestic students. That's probably a relatively secure position to be in. But if your job involves research or is research, uh, you should be very, very concerned about the future because we're having a double hit. Both the international student funding is being reduced and the proportion of student funding that could be spent on research is being taken away. So for research in Australia, uh, it's not a very rosy scenario. All right. Well, on that less rosy uh, point, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, Andrew Norton, for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, thanks to our producer, Emily Holmes, our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. And next week on On Liberty, Claire Lehman. So please join us next week. We hope to see you then.